Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here, and I just wanted to drop in for a quick second to tell you that this podcast is really gaining popularity, and in order for us to continue growing like this, I'd love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. Plus, I'm always excited to hear feedback and continue to improve our content based on what you want to hear. I know I'm in. Are you? Are the Miami Heat trying to tank? Will the trade deadline finally be exciting this year? Was Dan D'Antoni right in his three-point philosophy? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today I'm excited to bring on Aaron Bruski of hoop-ball.com and also of the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Uh, always a rollicking good time when you're listening to Aaron talk about the NBA. So uh, thanks for coming on. Let's break some stuff down. What do you say? Yeah, I'm fired up, Coach Nick. I, I'm a, a devout follower on Twitter. I love breaking down film. I haven't got as much chance to do that this year because we have so many responsibilities over at HoopBall. But uh, I'm looking forward to this, so let's get after it. All right. Well, you know, we, you talk a lot about the Kings, and so it seemed like if you don't want to talk about that, we can put that away for a few minutes because I don't want to talk about Boogie anymore. And In fact, we've done this before in our podcast where I ask the, the, our guests, what do you not want to talk about? <laughs> so it seems like Boogie would be the top of your list, right? Absolutely. I mean, I talk about the Kings 24-7. It feels like that's what everybody in the NBA feels like they want to talk about. So uh, if we get a, a pod free of, of Kings talk, I'm actually thrilled with that. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Let's jump into something that I've been interested in. I, I want to do a little bit more of a re- research on. Maybe you can help me. Is the Miami Heat because... I'm scratching my head. I like a lot of their young players. Uh, They looked like they had a nucleus that was going to compete at the very least, and instead it's gone the other way. And I'm trying to scratch my head here and figure out what's going on. Um, What are your impressions of what's going on down in South Beach? Um, it seems like they're actively tanking, and, and that's, that's new. I, I mean, that's not typically their MO there. I know that they talked a lot about in the preseason that they would not do that, but the injuries seem to have pointed them toward that inevitability. Uh, you know, Hassan Whiteside most recently with an eye issue. He's had a couple dings, and it's, it's interesting to watch the interplay between Hassan and Eric Spolstra as they kind of argue over whether or not he's hurt. And, and that whole <laughs> contract and, and the Hassan Whiteside experience, which, you know, due to my time in Sacramento, I could actually speak on, that's an interesting thing. But their lack of depth has put them at a disadvantage. They've won some of these games where they've come into the games very banged up. But it's just hard, I think. Last night they had something like seven or eight active players and any sort of continuity in in that uh, kind of an environment is not possible. So, you know, the big question I think is going to be Goran Dragic. So I'd be interested to get your thoughts on on where you think he's at as a player because I'm kind of on the fence about his future as far as his contract goes. Well, I was a really big Dragic fan going way back into his Phoenix days uh, when he had, you know, just some amazing, fun, uh, really energetic play. uh, And he was unstoppable in the open court. It felt like once he got going uh, with that left hand, he would be able to finish amongst the trees most of the time. And it was really just a fun way to play. Um, But he's really had a hard time, like, sort of recapturing that. And I guess part of it is having Dwayne Wade on his team. uh, Simply, it just wasn't going to happen that way where he can control the game like he did earlier in his career. So, um, you know, it it obviously would be – this would have been the time where this was a team where there wasn't a lot of guys who were going to be alpha in front of him to take away uh, the ball from him. So, 
Um, you know, if it ain't working here and he's got a huge contract, if I'm not mistaken, correct, he's getting paid a ton of money. Oh, yeah. So, you know, so I could see why, okay, the season's not going well. They want to go young. They want to bring in some picks, whatever. They would trade him. You know, he should have quite a bit of value. I mean, I would like to have him on my team if I were coaching, certainly. So I guess the next question is he can't go to a team that already has, you know, uh, a backcourt player like a shooting guard who wants to, you know, dominate the ball uh, or, you know, that kind of thing. So it makes it difficult because – there aren't a lot of like good teams that he could go to, right? Like, do you see any teams that were good that he could sort of, you know, he'd have to come off the bench if he went to a good team. It seems like. Yeah, that's one of the the interesting things about the league these days is there's about twenty solid point guards in this league. If you wanted to slim it down to fifteen, absolutely, and most of them play for the good team. So he doesn't have a real natural fit. I don't think he lands in in a trade anywhere that would be very good for you know Goran Dragic's playoff positioning um you know one of the speaking of sacramento one of the i think sweetheart situations for the kings is if they can somehow lock into a goran Dragic deal which would represent miami saying we want to move on go young you know the the ages don't line up with the contract um you know the heat aren't going to be good anytime in the next two to three years so maybe they get out of goran Dragic business if you're sacramento beggars can't be choosers yeah that contract might be a little bit heavy because of his age but you've had this long-term problem at the point guard position. Darren Collison is a free agent after this season. So that would be a scenario for the Kings that I'm sure they would trip trip and fall all over themselves to get at. Now, do they have the assets to give back to Miami? Because this is a quality player. There would be some sort of a trade market there at the deadline. So I think we're going to see the NBA at large start to open up. I feel good about this trade deadline with the Paul Millsap talk. That really got, I think, the juices flowing across the NBA. He's a guy that I don't think is going to be in Atlanta next year. He's got tremendous trade value, not just as a long-term piece, but if you wanted to treat him as a rental, you know, if you're the Toronto Raptors, if you're any team out there that needs a power forward, and there's plenty of them, you know, you can you can actually throw a mid-first-round pick at the Hawks, and I think that that sets a foundation for them where they're actually getting something in return, and then that greases the wheels where. Now you just talk about his bird rights and the team that gets him has the best chance of keeping him long term. And to make to put a cherry on top of it, he's up there in age. He's got so much mileage on him and he's played through so many injuries that it makes it a risk. So I I really am intrigued by the Millsap contract situation and then how that's going to set the trade market into motion, because we've seen some pretty I don't know the the, the trade deadlines haven't been good the last three years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe I'm missing a year in there, but it feels like this one's going to be a good one. Oh, okay. Interesting. I, I kind of think that there's always some anticipation, and then bam, it just ends up being kind of a dud. Um, you know, the funny thing about Millsap, because that's it's certainly been coming up, and I actually threw it out there on Twitter the other day where the Clippers could use him, right? Because Blake seems to be continually breaking down as well. And, you know, at the very least, when you look at Millsap's career, you know, he's played, uh, he's been pretty durable. The only problem I had, though, was I guess my impression of his three-point shooting was a lot better than it really is. Because I'm looking at the numbers now, and I, I thought he was like, you know, average around there. But he's definitely below that. He's 32% this year on uh, three and a half uh, uh, attempts per game, which is a career high for him. So, <clears throat> you know, does he does he space the floor a little bit better than Blake Griffin does? Um, you know, maybe. But does he do anything more on the defensive end than Blake does? And that probably would move me, uh, again, to that, that notion that he, you know, he would help the Clippers uh, significantly. Yeah, and he's versatile enough to play a little bit of three, even in today's small ball NBA. And let me get the sound off of ESPN stat page, the old autoplay, death to autoplay. 
Um, the I, I do think he would be a decent fit with the Clippers, though it is a little tough to see. I don't think he can play a lot of three. And, you know, Blake will be back. They're making their run. Uh, they're their own little story out there. Their decision to keep the team together is, um, you know, is one that's going to kind of define them for the next three to four years because chances are they're not knocking off the Warriors. But I get their I get their want and desire to stay relevant and make another go at it. So that, on one hand, is an interesting landing spot. And then the question of, of the Clippers, what do you do with Blake Griffin? Do you continue to go for a playoff run now that you've had this injury? Is this injury career-defining for him? His explosion has been dipping every single year and he's become better around the perimeter and and has really reshaped his game and it is a perfect compliment i think to chris paul and deandre jordan so is is he though a part of their future does he land in a place like oklahoma city who needs a power forward again another reason why i'm kind of excited about this trade deadline though i i have to slap myself and say you know what stop doing that because every year i do get disappointed when nothing <laughs> happens it was like five years ago when it was awesome and yeah. it hasn't been awesome since well, I think it's also a function of the, the CBA and the way those things work. I mean, we, we were thinking about, you know, trades. And whenever, like, the Spurs come up, I just tell people, you know, they've never done a midseason trade for a rotation player. I don't think ever. Like, it certainly last, like, 20 years. They, I don't think they've ever really done it. Maybe, like, they brought in Steven Jackson again, who had already been there once before. But, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm correct. And I don't think, right, there, you can't think of anybody that they brought in as a rotational player, right? Oh, no, no, not at all. And I'm trying to think of the last time that that actually worked for somebody. And, and would it be the Pistons sheed? I, right. Like, has it has it successful? Because it used to do that in the 80s. I can remember way back in the day, they'd bring in, like, Michael Thompson. The Lakers came in and, like, uh, spur them on. And that did really well, I believe, if my memory is correct. But you're right. Like, I, I think teams are reluctant to do that as well because how are they going to catch up on, like, what they're running? I mean, that said, if you listen to Popovich, everyone runs all the same stuff anyway. So maybe it isn't that hard. Um, but... But, you know, considering what the, the Spurs haven't done it, I think it tells you at least they don't do everything the same way. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's also it, it's, it's difficult uh, with the way the contracts are. It feels like the free agency frenzy is really what we've ended up getting out of the new CBA. Yeah, and what's interesting about the CBA, too, is we're now into this kind of balloon year where we've got the first year of the CBA's big contract um, that, that's underway. And so... Maybe it is a reverse effect, whereas in the past, everybody was waiting for the big bubble to hit. And I think a lot of teams said, you know what, we're just going to take our chances in free agency. Everybody's going to have a lot of spend. Everybody feels like they've got the best pitch in the room. So they say, you know what? And I've noticed this actually, it's a sidebar, this GMs are, in my opinion, they're more apprehensive about making deals now. I mean, look at what's going on in Philadelphia with Brian Colangelo. You've got a, a situation with the bigs that's in my opinion, kind of actively rotting that front court from the inside out. They're not able to make any real progress, though they did get a win the other night. So I guess, you know, what do I know? But they're, um, they're, I think GMs are afraid to make a deal that's going to make them look bad. You're not going to get anything better for Jaleel Okafor or Nerlens Noel right now um, than you will, you know, at the trade deadline. I think that the, these, these teams that kind of put the pause button on their organizations – and, and don't make a deal for the sake of trying to hold out and get the best possible deal. They're really risking a lot, and I don't know what they're gaining. Uh, the, the CBA plays a big role in that. So how will the CBA now, we've got a year of big money contracts under everybody's belt. You'll have a second year this summer. Does that open it up at all? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answers to those questions, but 
I do sense, you know, you just saw an article from Chris Haynes come out this morning about Portland kind of giving a background or why they've struggled. And to me, it read sort of like a wish list for, for Portland, what they could want out there. And they mentioned they don't want DeMarcus Cousins. They don't want Nerlens Noel. And I said, OK, they want those two guys. And then they mentioned a <laughs> list of players they would not trade. And I was like, okay, that's their list of players they're willing to trade. And that's a great question is Portland. Can they, can that backcourt work together? Two very talented players. I mean, you can't say anything wrong about Damian Lillard or CJ McCollum, but can they put, what's your opinion on that? Can they work together? I mean, I, I certainly have watched uh, my share of CJ McCollum out there in the court uh, alongside Damian. And I think it works really, really well because um, CJ is very complimentary in that respect. He could play the very traditional shooting guard role. And then when Damian goes to the bench, he can now run the team pretty well as a secondary point guard. So I think that that's fine. Now, if you want to argue the defensive end, um, now there is that, that could be an issue. I mean, you can also argue that they can outscore, that they can mitigate that by, you know, with their scoring. So is it a wash? And then if it's a wash, then, you know, they just need to get some better front court playing. Now, uh, so I think they can work. I, I think that those two guys work well. Uh, if, if you're looking for an issue, if that's not necessarily the issue I would point to as far as what's going on there. Uh, like, you know, a guy like Aminu, who I'm sure is an awesome locker room guy and works really hard, like he frustrates me because his offensive game is really limited. And even for, for whatever little, little tiny bits of hope you might get from a move he does, it still seems clear to me, even from his Clippers days, where he just doesn't dribble very well and he doesn't shoot very well. Uh, and those two skills are important at that position. And so, you know, I would look at that would be the place I looked at to upgrade right away. Well, and there actually that was one of the wish list. I mean, Noel was in that wish list item and they did talk about. They, I think they felt that Festus Azili was going to give them something this year in terms of rim protection. And that's hopeful, in my opinion. And, and they did swing and miss on some of the other centers out there, like Dwight Howard. And, and that kind of tells you how valuable rim protection is, is to certain teams, especially if you've got to build with that backcourt you know, defensively in mind. Uh, Aminu, uh, Harkless, you know, even Alan Crabb, you know, guys that are even better offensively. I think that they press in this offense because they don't really know when their touches are going to come. They can start to disappear and they take shots they shouldn't take. And that kind of, you know, if they're not giving it on the defensive end, that that turns into a little bit of a roller coaster where you see this Blazers team that had so much hope and optimism coming into the into the season where they start to trail off. And uh, real interesting article. I mean, Festus Azili was addressing the team having not played a game, and C.J. McCollum apparently told him to shut up. So, <laughs> you know, that's uh, always fun background stuff. But, yeah, the Blazers are, are – I think they need to make a deal. I think that they need to get a, a big in there that can help protect the rim because apparently Mason Plumlee's not doing – I haven't watched enough film on him. I would think he's a decent fit back there. But, um, you know, Myers Leonard's not blocking any shots. You know, it's all about team optimization. So, uh, you know, they're, they're among the many teams that are imperfect in this league. Well, you know, it also speaks to the, the Festus Azili uh, situation does speak to, um, I think, why there are not a lot of trades. And I think part of it is because GMs uh, are afraid to, get, to lose the deal, right? Those, it, it, no deal is better than a bad deal uh, on a trade. And so I feel like that's another reason why they get kind of uh, par- uh, paralyzed and not make trades is because they're so afraid to have, uh, you know, what happened with um, how, you know, they don't want to deal with Ujiri because he, what he did with New York and how he was able to fleece them and that, that kind of stuff. Uh, but then again, we have the Izili thing who's probably going to end up not playing at all this year because he's injured. And that's another issue because 
that's not necessarily anyone's fault. Like, you picked him up, he would have been a decent rim protector. I, I, without question, he would have really helped in that department. But, like, what are you going to do? The guy gets hurt. It's not his fault. It just happened. They can't get him right. He's going to miss probably the whole season. And so here you have now uh, a real problem because, uh, you know, we might not be talking this way. They, they, the Portland might be six games above 500 and right in the mix with a little with better rim protect, protection. Yeah, and, you know, you even see it to a bigger extent with, with teams like Boston. You know, Boston's sitting on all these assets, all these picks. You know, I think that they probably, unfortunately for them, put a lot of ba- eggs in the basket of trying to make a run at Boogie Cousins. That was really never going to happen um, as much as they might try through the media to try to pry him away. Um, and, and what are you going to show for it? You know, if you're Boston, you're in a win now posture. You've got too many guards. You've got too many players in general and too many picks. And so that's my biggest takeaway from the last two to three years in, in the kind of off the court stuff is, is teams not pulling the trigger and not making deals when they could have. And, and it's kind of, um, you know, it's, it's similar to the fantasy leagues that I play in and I write about is if you're an aggressive owner or you're an aggressive GM, you're going to have a great shot at things. Look at uh, look at Houston right now. I've been down on Houston as much as anybody, been down on their offseason as much as anybody, but at least they took their shot, you know, and, and they're out there. What some record that's like, what, 30 and seven, some crazy uh, record right now, 27 and nine right now. It's crazy. And, and they're, but they went for a philosophy and if it clicks, it clicks and they had no chance anyway, shoot your shot, build something, you know, set up, a, set up a situation where James Harden now is the unquestioned alpha male in there running the offense his way. And, and then you build around him. So if they could get a few more players with some upside for the future, because I'm really worried about their injury situation. It feels like if one player goes down, whether it's Trevor Ariza, Patrick Beverly, you name it, you pick one and they go down. I mean, Clint Capella to me seemed like it would be the worst, but you know, they're actually making up for it with Montrez Harrell. Yeah, now, one was, other player. I, I love Harold. I've lo- and I was kind of you know sometimes I'm worried. I don't know why because I, I usually just say the craziest things on Twitter or whatever and on, on the podcast. But I always like Montrez Harold. I I hardly ever watch college. I always you know watch it right before the uh, the tournament and then I cover some tournament games. But he stood out to me from the beginning of, uh, at, in college, and I was always excited to see what he could do in the pros. Uh, how is his fantasy right now? I'm kind of curious. I mean, because he's doing very nicely so far in his role. Is he giving people fantasy value? Yeah, absolutely. He's given top 100 value, which is for a player like him that didn't really have a lot of notoriety heading into the season with you know practically no attention. He, he, that's great for him. And he'll be consistent doing that. And I think fantasy is a really interesting thing. I highly recommend fantasy to all your listeners that don't play. You know, If you want to know about 30 teams and 12 players per team, and really have a good background. If it's, you know you're going out there, you're doing media, you're doing stuff, you know, out there in the NBA to be able to really talk about uh, each team in depth. It's just fun, you know. The, the research is fun. It's competitive, and uh, you, you do actually meet quite a few people in the world of fantasy, um, you know, playing out there against other people in front offices and stuff like that. So it, it's a good thing, and and I've been thrilled to cover it, um, you know, for basically ten years now. Uh, you get to know the Montrez Heralds of the world. And, uh, and know why they're good. And, um, you know, the, the Rockets are, are an interesting squad. They, they, I, I, I made a bet with somebody in the Kings front office that they would finish under 500 this year. <laughs> and it's going to take a lot of losses in a row now for that to happen. And I, I'm just curious to see how far they push the boundary of the three-point shot because, you know, you had Mike's brother Dan D'Antoni go out there and have a really classic rant about post-play. And I see Denver, you know, with Nikola Jokic 
really run well out of the post. And it's my belief if you could get the ball below the free throw line and you get defenders turning their head, that just opens up so much for your offense. But on the other hand, you have the Rockets out there setting records practically every night for shooting threes. So I don't know, where do you stand on the three-point shot? Well, you know, we did a video, I think it was last year, where we analyzed the three-point percentages from where the pass comes from, which I think is people don't necessarily uh, appreciate. And we noticed that the, the highest percentage was from the post. And for what, exactly what you said, when the, you don't need to score down there, but when you throw it there, defensive heads turn, they shift down a little bit lower, and now you're also, the, here's the key in the special sauce, is that you are facing the basket when you catch the ball from a pass from the post, no matter where you are. And it's a lot easier to make those than when you have to turn your body and catch the ball from the wing or anywhere else. Uh, and then shoot it. So there's no way the post-up's going to go away. It, it certainly can become more of a facilitating thing. But we, we've seen that since the Bulls in the triangle when they'd have Luke Longley down there being the facilitator. He wasn't going to do a post-up move generally and score. So that's the same thing that they recognized then. Uh, they were shooting more longer twos, but they also, but they knew that when, when I catch the ball from that area, I'm already facing the basket, generally more open. So uh, anyway, I, I remind me what Dan D'Antoni did say, because I, I, I saw it somewhere on Twitter and I'm forgetting. I know I responded, but I'm forgetting. What did he say? It, it was a good moment where he it, like, you know, he had, had his first half of his answer out there and then he took a little like drink of water. And then the, ne- the reporter asked his next question. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not done yet. And he gets into the second part of his rant. Um, more or less, he said that he was an old school coach that used to get it, get the ball down in the post. And that no longer does he do that. He started quoting uh, points per possession from different spots on the floor. So like the corner three and and all the way down to the block. And I feel like that's an overly simplistic argument. And I just wonder if pick and roll basketball has is the easy way to get a three. And teams are almost looking at this as like, what's the easiest way? What's the low hanging fruit for me to launch as many threes per game? And like you said, if you're catching the ball from the wing, or off of motion, you're, you're definitely taking a tougher shot because your eyes aren't looking at the hoop. Whereas with the post play, there's just so much. I mean, you watch Nikola Jokic play. I mean, the passes that kid's making in Denver and the way that that offense looks right now. You know, previously they were working with an isolation offense where Wilson Chandler and Danilo Gallinari were doing most of the work. Everybody standing around, no motion, no cutting. Nobody thought they would get a pass. And then you just put one pure passer into the mix down beneath the free throw line and everything opens wide open. So I'm just, you know, I think with the the push towards three-point shooting in this league and the play, the push to downsize, I'm waiting for teams to take the opposing approach. You know, I think even uh, Joe Lacob mentioned it, that they would zig when everybody was zagging at some point and start to develop the Pau Gasols of the NBA, you know, the Nikola Jokic's of the NBA who can get the ball down, or the DeMarcus Cousins of the NBA. It just drives me nuts when they don't put DeMarcus Cousins in the post down there. And they have them up at the top of the key shooting or taking, you know, dribble drive penetration shots. It's crazy. Yeah. Now, there's nothing better for me for like for a, a boogie, for instance. He could post up down low and really try and get low position. He doesn't get it. Great. Flow out to the corner. And then there, there's a three-pointer for you or can come around and do other things. I like that notion. But certainly because you have to have the threat of the post up, which is going to open up everything for you from that position. And uh, if you can't see me, I'll take my drink of water and, uh, and then continue my rant on what D'Antoni said. Because the problem I have with that notion is that he's going to quote points per possession for post-up players and, and as proof that it's not a good play. And I will then present to you 50 post-ups by Blake Griffin. 
and explain why this is the post-up is a problem. Because, A, he's generally one of the top post-up players we've seen in points per possession, but his footwork is atrocious. Mm. It's every terrible. game, every game he'll surprise me with another horrible attempt at a, at a post-move. And yet, here he is leading the league most of the time. So my take on it, my rant is that, you know, Kevin McHale shot like 54% from the field in his career. Now, some of those are probably putbacks, I'd imagine, but most of those are all post moves. He didn't shoot from the outside too much at all. So let's just pretend that he shot 50% on his post-up moves. That's 1.0 points per possession, which is significantly higher than we have now. Well, every team had a post-up player like that. And so most of the post-ups were probably 1.0 points per possession back then. So, and, and no one would argue if that was what it was now that we shouldn't be doing that. So I think that this is a pure indication of the lack of post moves, lack of footwork, lack of skill that we've lost over these last 20 or 30 years. And if we ever had a chance to find a new crop of big men that had better footwork and could finish, then we wouldn't be arguing that the post-up is not an efficient shot. Yeah, and it's tough because the AAU circuit is obviously going to take a lot of the hits for how they develop players. And now that's what I kind of fear for the NBA game from an aesthetic point of view is everybody's trying to develop spacing bigs and and not really focusing on the footwork down there. And so what are we going to end up with? You're going to end up with a lot of Blake Griffins that take these spinning jump shots from the block that make no sense whatsoever or you know, just the, you know, the lack of Miles Turner's out there. And even Miles Turner is, is a little bit, you know, underdeveloped on his post moves. I mean, you look at players like Al Jefferson, and he could still make a living down there at the post. That, that play is, has got to stay. You know, I think that teams would be wise to kind of ignore their analytics departments right now. Because I feel like in analytics, there's still stuff that's unexplained. There's still stuff that's not figured out. And if you're going to go in there hardcore with that money ball philosophy, if you just feel like you really got to understand your personnel and then keep in mind, too, you could have one or two injuries that completely throw that whole plan off. And so you're building for something. You could make the argument that injuries are going to happen no matter what. But if you're building for one way and you're not flexible enough, it's like the coach that has the system that then gets the personnel that doesn't fit the system. And then they continue to run the system, even though their personnel isn't going to match. And I feel like flexibility is the key to almost anything in life, um, particularly in basketball. So I think the teams that, that work on developing these bigs are going to have a leg up. I, I agree. I feel like there's, there's, there's no better shot than when you can get it at the rim uh, like that, even, even a three-pointer. And um, we need that. I think we need to develop that. And what I've been working with on a lot of with some kids now and some players at lower levels is attacking on the catch in the post. Because the new thing that we had seen over the last five, six years and the Spurs brought in was no more triple threat, hold the ball, rip through, jab step. You know, that, that whole, you know, uh, Carmelo is a dinosaur. We're, we're seeing the last relics. I even compared him to Marty McSorley. Turns out it wasn't <laughs> him. It was another Mick something uh, who the last guy not to wear a helmet in the NHL. Who was he? Yep. Um, Mix, not McSorley. Um, oh, anyway. Well, I think McSorley hit somebody with a hockey stick. Okay. Well, there's another his, guy <laughs> with a mix something who didn't wear a helmet. It was like the last guy had the total mullet skating around out there in the 80s where everyone else did. Well, that's what Melo is now with this whole jab set moves. Well, I think it's the same thing in the post. And we've been working with that where no more of this six dribble, like isolation, back down, trying to do a post up. No, it's, it's what it should be, it should be like when it was in the 40s and the 50s where they come around a screen, the low block, and bam, catch it and, and shoot real quick. And well, I think we need to get back to that 
and that will open up a lot more stuff outside. So, you know, I think that the Warriors are doing a pretty good, um, you know, example of that. And I know they have, you know, two of the greatest shooters of all time. But shooting will, will continue to improve. And I think more and more NBA teams will start to have more of these shooters as we go forward. Uh, but what they're doing is attacking out of the post. It's, it's, they're a post team, if you believe it or not, when you watch how they attack. Watching them is just a thrill to watch because everything just has a purpose and it's just a beautiful, beautiful game. Um, I, the the post pass is dead, and then bigs even screening across for each other. Something as simple as that, you just don't see it. Maybe it's a function of the offensive sets. Um, you know, high post play is in vogue. I, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on high post play. Um, I feel like it's all in the name of getting spacing. And, and the gravity of bringing the bigs out from underneath the rim. And, and I see the value in that. I really do. I think that being able to drive into open spaces definitely helps your offense. But, you know, just the, the pure impact of being able to get offensive rebounds, get the opposing team into foul trouble, and to work from the bottom out, it, to me it seems like the benefit's more there than having your big men up high. Well, you know, this is funny. I didn't think this was going to turn into a, a philosophy of offense here, but because I, I, I intend to write a book on this uh, at some point soon. But the high post, I, the pinch post is my favorite action of all. And I was thinking about why. First of all, you're right. It brings the big guy up to the elbow and then it clears the basket area with space. But I think the key here, because the actual pinch post action is a guard would throw it to the guy uh, at the elbow and then sprint around looking for the handoff. That action alone opens up so much for either of the players. And I, what I think I like the most about offense is when you can have uh, an opportunity for your players to sprint before catching the ball. And no more of the stagnant spot up where you're standing there for 20 seconds and all of a sudden they kick it out and you got to shoot it without any time on the clock. I want my guys to be sprinting across and at the basket. I, you know, I don't even like floppies that much anymore because now you're sprinting away from the basket. You have to catch it, and only the best shooters in the world can really like get around and make that shot. Uh, and granted, there are some benefits with curls and that kind of stuff, but that's only you know, a small amount of time. So the pinch post and all the high post action that we see is predicated on sort of getting the cutters moving, and that's exciting to me. That's the way basketball should be played. Um, and remember, it's also the same in the low post. When you have cutters off a low post, it makes your postman better because he can fake the pass there. Sorry, I'm getting so excited I'm hitting my mic. <laughs> you, can, you can fake the pass, and then your man generally will move that way a little bit, and now you've got some space to attack. And so, yeah, so I love high post action. And if, it, if we had to, like, lose low post action in exchange to have more high post, then I probably would be okay with that. See, I watch a ton of high post right now, and I find it so fascinating because Dave Yeager will not go away from Costa Cufos. And there's a spacing issue with those two together, and they don't play as well together as other combinations on the floor. But Costa does such a great job setting screens in the high post, and everything you just talked about, they totally run. And it's smart, and it gets uh, you know easy buckets, and you know, you'd want them to maybe play a little bit closer to the hoop, a little bit on that pinch post, just so they could take advantage of cutters, do it sort of like Denver's doing it. Um, but it's a bad combination for the Kings, but he sticks with it because I think it, ge it generates the offense you're talking about, and it, it really has a nice flow to it. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm open-minded about the high post. Um, I, I think I might be tainted a little bit by some of the personnel issues that I watch on an everyday basis here. Um, but, you know, anytime you can get a player the ball – like you said, with the head of steam or with that type of natural advantage, that's the kind of stuff that I like watching NBA offense. Stuff like Golden State, you know, I'm watching the Suns and I'm going, ah, I can't stand watching them because it's all pick and roll. 
all ISO, and uh, you'd want to see players just only one or two dribbles. That's all you want them to take so they can just get a nice and easy shot. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I didn't know we'd get into the offense discussion either, but I, I kind of like it. Yeah, I mean, I think that John Wooden had a great quote. I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but something like, if you catch and shoot, that's good. If you take one dribble and shoot, you're not open. And if you take two dribbles and shoot, you're sitting next to me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I think Clay showed us with his 60-point game that there is a, a path to being able to do that without having dribbled too much. But without question, I know if we looked at the analytics, I don't know if we have them, but the more dribbles you take before a shot, the percentage has to go. I mean, after like two or whatever, the percentage has to go down because simply it's, you're just you're less and less open for that reason. Um, and it's a shame because uh, that's what we need to uh, to ex- accentuate more and get in the heads of players more. It's easier. It's better. It's better for the team when you take better shots. Uh, let me ask about Phoenix because uh, people on Twitter came up to me the other day and were really talking about that. And there's a really great quote by Earl Watson talking about how um, – you know, what's the mindset of this team going to be? Are you going to want to be for the team and help us get better shots? Or do you want to, are you convinced that your uh, attempt is going to be better than anybody else's and that's the only way we're going to score? I think something like that. Um, is that what you're seeing out there? Yeah, it's a take turns offense. It's tough. You know, you got Brandon Knight out there who legitimately, you know, he can he can be frustrated. He played five minutes the other night. He got benched for Tyler Uless. You know, Tyler does what Tyler you would expect him to do. He's very, um, you know, he's pe- or he's pestering the ball handler and he's he's quick and he's getting in passing lanes. He's doing all that stuff and he's trying to make his name in the NBA. So he's not worried about his, you know, diminishing value on the market. And, you know, Brandon Knight's had some injury issues and fit issues there. So it's pretty I don't want to say toxic because I don't think Watson runs a toxic locker room at all. But they're young. And, you know, you got Devin Booker, who's kind of supposed to be the next big thing and he's not getting the shots that he really should be getting you'd like to see them use him like clay thompson and 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 get him off the ball and get him off some of some of the types of cuts you see in golden state where he just takes one or two dribbles but that's not happening it's a lot of step back long twos it's a lot of stuff that just you look at it and you immediately know what's wrong i don't know that they're developing um it's kind of an interesting situation in phoenix where i think that they didn't do an exhaustive search for coach uh, McDonough said that he talked to players and they said, we like Earl Watson. He said, okay, it's on you guys then. That's a weird decision right there. Uh, Sarver has never been known for spending money. Um, you, you really just wonder, is he NBA rich? Um, so a lot of question marks there for that organization. And you just hope that they can push through it because they got a lot of good young talent. Young talent can get kind of ruined at an early age. Um, you know, you, I've personally seen it in Sacramento up close. So uh, Devin Booker, I'm really disappointed with his season so far because he really looked like one of those players that got it. Mm -hmm. And right now he looks like anything but that. You know, I did a a video before the season started really excited about Devin Booker because of what we were seeing and how he played. And to me, yeah, he seemed like he understood the value of a good shot and wanted to play within an offensive structure where he could, you know, the ball would swing and he could attack on the catch and all those things. Um, are you? See, I haven't got a chance to watch Phoenix a lot recently. So, are is, are you seeing? Um, is Booker also sort of the, to the point now where he's just saying, "F it, I'm just going to have to get my shots because it's not working any other way." Absolutely, and you can tell Watson when interviewed is really pushing back on 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 Booker. It's like a war of wills between those two. Booker, or probably yeah, Watson, wants Booker to focus on the defensive side. Booker is getting caught up in the emotion of the game. And you see that as he talks trash to virtually anybody on the court. Um, it's 
something where he's 20 years old, you get it, you understand, um, you, we all want things to happen so fast. Um, but I will say this, I think that, again, this is an example of an offense being so he- heavily invested in the pick and roll, which you almost have to do when you have three ball handlers, you know, taking advantage of their strengths. You don't want to run isolation, um, but you can if you have ball handlers. You, you, you run the pick and roll when you've got a team that doesn't really generate great offense out of guys like Tyson Chandler, guys like Alex Len, who's been miscast as a power forward. And then you got your young kids at power forward who've been at times miscast as small forwards in the case of uh, Dragon Bender. And then you've got small power forwards like Jared Dudley. It seems like they got too many pieces. Um, you know, a, an addition by sacri- uh, subtraction situation might help for them. But it's yeah, it's a lot of pick and roll offense. It's a lot of isolation offense. And it's just ugly on yeah. most nights. And, you know, to me, it always felt like Bledsoe is basically playing Booker's position. Like, you know, Bledsoe isn't really a point guard. And I guess when you're looking at who's starting, right, he is sort of the, 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 the point guard in the starting lineup, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he's built on athleticism and not necessarily on, you know, facilitating within the flow of the offense. And, mm-hmm. But that's his game. That's what he's good at. And, and that's kind of the problem with teams is you get players who do what they do well, but it doesn't really fit within the team concept. If Devin Booker is your, your player of the future, you, you've got to figure out ways to highlight his game, and that would be delivering passes coming off of screens where he does not have to take a lot of dribbles and, and getting him spot-up opportunities, but they're just not doing that. Yeah. I mean, he plays with Chris Paul, and he's, he's J.J. Redick times five. Like, he's a better version of that. He's probably, like, closer to C.J. McCollum. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, I think, the, the, the tough thing is watching him shoot sub-40% on 18 attempts per game. And nobody's taking him aside and saying, okay, hey, you know, until you can get a good shot off, you know, we want you to cut your shot attempts down. And, and that kind of leadership, I know that's tough. It's easier said than done at the NBA level. Shooters going to shoot. Players are going to get aggressive and they're going to go. But I think with a player that young, you, you have to set the foundation early and say, look, man, this chucking's not going to work. You know, it's 20 games. Officially, we have to pull you back now. Until you show you know that you you know what a good shot is, get your percentage up over forty five, and we'll talk we'll talk about you becoming a gunner again. Yeah, and you got to hope that he wouldn't pull the whole uh, you know ten year old response. Well, you know, Marquise Chris is doing it or whatever. <laughs> like you know, and, and then and then you know, and by the way, it could get away from you really quickly as a coach as well. But trust me, I I work with pros and um, you know on a very limited basis, and I you know I can see how it's not easy. And you you know you might have to luck into it. I mean, like Steve Kerr probably has some luck involved where he got the situation where these guys were willing to be coached. They all played almost you know three four years in college almost all of them which i think is a huge thing that nobody wants to acknowledge right. it's very frustrating because i don't think it's by there's it an accident that they assembled a team uh you know i'm gonna have to get bob myers on here to talk about that and see because i asked luke walton about it and he kind of shrugged but i think that there's it's not a coincidence that they were playing exceptional uh intelligent basketball team basketball and almost every single one of them played at least two if not three or four years in college and they, they, you got a bunch of players that were a little bit under-heralded. And you look at these guys around the league. You look at the Jay Crowders out there who's in the news right now for talking about his uh, place in Boston in relation to Gordon Hayward. you got Isaiah Thomas, last pick in the draft. You know, these guys that come in after four years of school, they're, they're clawing their way to the top. They learn how to play within a team concept. The Garrett Temples of the world, if you watch him in Sacramento, the defense he is playing is outstanding right now. 
it, it, there's a little bit of an entitlement factor with a lot of players that are one and done coming from these big programs. And, and especially in the case of Devin Booker in Kentucky, where he played with five other, you know, potential future, future all-stars, he's probably like, okay, now it's my time. And, and so there's a little bit of pulling back the reins there. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the players from Kentucky seem to have a similar issue uh, with either uh, teammates in, in interactions or the team concept. And, um, you know, we, there's only one person that has, is a, that's a common denominator between all of them. And um, <laughs> I've certainly been as brutal as I can be on him. And certainly, uh, you know, listen, his goal isn't to create an NBA player. His goal is to lift this, these guys out of poverty, basically, is what it sounds like. And, uh, and that is, he is 100% successful, or at least he's not 100 but whatever. He's successful with that, with is more than anyone ever has before. So, you know, kudos for that. But, man, um, it leads to some issues on the court, it looks like. Um, but where we haven't had any issues is today in our podcast, because this has been a fantastic ride through. I'm not sure we, I've ever touched upon this many subjects in a very, so smoothly, right? I mean, that was a segue to a segue. It was crazy. Great, I mean, great stuff. Yeah. Hey, thank you. And I've been a fan from, from I guess, afar. We've never met each other, but uh, I love the breakdowns. And I love everything you guys do over there. So anytime you guys want to do it again, let me know. Absolutely. For sure. We'll check in with you. Uh, you know, the podcast, we're, we keep ramping them up and figuring out how many we can do. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need you. So you're going to have to come back on uh, at some point soon and we'll talk even more about everything else. So thanks again for coming on. And uh, just tell us where everybody can find you on Twitter. On Twitter, Aaron Bruski, A-R-O-N-B-R-U-S-K-I, and then at hoop-ball.com, where we're un- unlo- well, unleashing, pardon me if I botch that, unleashing tons of fantasy content, and then even NBA content we're putting out there. Lots of pods, videos, stuff like that, so go check it out. But thank you for coming on the show, and don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Aaron? I'm in. <laughs> <laughs>